0: We just live right now, man. It's going down, for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins.
1: On the streets of old Milwaukee
2: was a young boy walking.
0: Somebody needs to take this mic away from you. You never need to hold it again. It's always a hater in the group.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brew Hoop podcast, season-ending Brew Hoop podcast for the Milwaukee Bucks, who are now officially eliminated from the NBA playoffs as they suffered a 100-94 Game 6 loss at the hands of the Toronto Raptors, who of course won four straight to advance to their first NBA Finals. Ever since they became a franchise, uh, a rather somber mood here at the Brew Hoop podcast. Of course, I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of brewhoop.com. Just got back from a, a delightful weekend in Savannah at a wedding, though, which helped uh, keep my spirits high despite the tragic nature of the Buck season ending. Joined by Kyle and Riley, as per usual. And fellas, have we gotten over game six yet? Are we feeling a little bit better at this point?
1: uh no i think uh if if you caught me like two to three years ago i would definitely still be really upset uh i I think i've matured a little bit as a fan i got over it pretty quickly after the game had finished just because to me it once we were going to the game six it kind of sort of felt a little inevitable like you know never say die but it i wasn't feeling great going into the game so um, I had already emotionally steeled myself, and uh, I'm ready to uh, dive into the off season and forget this past year even happened. You know what I mean? I'm gonna cry here.
0: All right. So first things first. Um, I will say, anyone that's listening to this, I'm going to eventually be in your DMs and, and charge you one dollar at least to listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> if you don't give me that money, I'm going to then turn around and put you on blast on Twitter. I'm going to end your careers. Um, so. We're just going to get that out of the way first and foremost. And then maybe after that, I will then write a hit piece saying, you know, brew podcast listeners, are they going to leave after the 2020 if the Bucks don't make the finals? And when I ask you that same question, you can just storm out on me.
1: I don't know, Kyle. Our n- our numbers are pretty good, but I don't know if our numbers are good enough to start threatening the like three people who listen. So <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be
2: like my dad, my dad. Yeah. You.
1: He would, he, your dad would be willing to kick in a dollar though, wouldn't he? Uh, mm, right, well, they after your
0: supposed bet you might need that money back yeah, you, you gotta start collecting that oh, yeah. Money. i think Why the question yeah
2: i mean like like i said it wasn't a significant sum i just felt like putting a little money down um i yeah i don't know i'm I, now i have to decide whether to tell the future wife or not that i um threw away some of our uh, wedding slash honeymoon money on the bucks losing in this round um although i will say she had probably my favorite take on this, um, as a, as a, as a, someone who's just sort of hopped on the Bucks bandwagon this year. Um, she said, I think we were like sitting down and I was kind of sad and she's like, you told me this, you told me right from the outset to be disappointed that the Bucks will disappoint you. So, you know, that's what they did. And, uh, that certainly, I think, is 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 certainly a valid way to feel after this loss and the ratcheting above of expectations from this season. I think it's it's a valid way for a lot of people to feel. I, I think there's also, I mean, certainly an argument to be made that this historic Bucks season went further than uh, I think I definitely expected at the start. Um, I know people like Kyle certainly had a lot more optimism than me, and uh, I, I I know I enjoyed certainly this ride from the very start, and um, I, I think. For me, it was, uh, I think at the end of the day, the thing that was most exciting for me was by the end of it, even when we were probably going down and losing to the Raptors here in six Riley, I felt like we had finally reached the point where all Bucs fans expectations were higher uh, than they've been in years. And I I don't think we haven't, we haven't been able to say that basically since um, that big three era.
1: Yeah, or the uh, the year after the Fear the Deer run or something along those lines. No, I, I, I agree generally. And I think what's so difficult kind of processing in the aftermath of the series loss is like, how do you balance your expectations having gone into the season? Because I think for the vast majority of people, you said you would, they would lose in six games, but they would make it to the Eastern Conference finals. You'd be like, wow, that's, that's an amazing season for the Bucs. And then, you know, as, as is kind of expected as you go on you become the top team in the league you you adjust your expectations and you have you know visions of grandeur and uh possibly getting to the finals so yeah i understand a lot of the disappointments um and it's not exactly great in terms of consoling to say oh you know if if we looked back nine months ago that we would be ecstatic about this this result so um i I get where everybody's coming from i think we we will probably in a couple months look back and There will be regrets having not been able to take a chance to get to the finals, but overall, um, I think a lot of people should be pleased with the way this team performed all year long and kind of realized a form that we saw the outlines of in the past, but who, who knew how quick it would be until we actually got to that most idealized version. So that's kind of what I'm going to look back on this season, even with a disappointing end to it.
2: Yeah, Kyle, what about you? I mean, obviously, you came in you on our podcast. You predicted the Eastern Conference Finals. I recall being dubious of that. I will now bow to you um, as having predicted how far the Bucs would go. What are just sort of some of your lingering feelings now that uh, the season's officially done?
0: Yeah, I think when I had some time to sit down and think about it, this was a really good year from the Bucs. When I when it's all said and done, like I'll look back at it and say, that was a good year with a good team that – brought great times um it's a bummer to lose and i think it's just more in the fashion that they lost it was losing four games in a row it was seemingly everything that went well in the regular season completely falling apart it was different stuff that i know we'll talk about but it, i think it's just how they lost it just leaves more of a bitter taste if they had lost you know a close seven game series kind of like the philly one where you know if one shot goes then it is what it is But I think with this one, it just seemed like there's such a common theme. But overall, I'd say it was good. I'm, yeah, when I said going to Easter Conference Finals, I thought they would have gotten a three or four seed, win their first round, pretty much get through the second round without too much difficulty, and then have a rock fight against Boston. Or, yeah, I guess I think it's in Boston where they would have a tough time but fall short. And I mean, they crushed Boston. So that was great. And I think this told, a lot about the team that kind of like what Riley was saying the expectations were raised from there and I think everyone had the same expectations by the time it got to the playoffs and that was this team could win the championship and I don't think it's going to matter if Golden State beats Toronto four or five or whatever it would have just been cool to see that Bay finals come to Milwaukee so it's a bummer but yeah I'll look back at it and say it was a good season
2: yeah, and let's get into you talked about the fashion of the of the Bucks losing here and let's 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 start to dive in and reflect a little bit on the series that was here that outed the Bucks. of course game 6 100 to 94 loss. I, I think even more frustrating by the fact that the Bucks had built up 15 point leads at at least 2 points within that game and then I believe it was the Raptors going like a 26 to 3 run from the end of the third quarter to around the 6 minute and 22nd mark of the fourth quarter. Uh and that really um uh, that really put the clamps on the bucks. They were able to make another quick run to bring them bring themselves within one. But then, as has sort of been the case uh, throughout this series, the the Raptors just have supreme execution down the stretch, uh, locking down the bucks. The bucks maybe get out of some of their habits that they formed all season. And I think that's kind of where I want to start, Riley. This was something that I was thinking about going into. The, these finals here when it was uh, the basically that that game seven between the raptors and, and the 76ers and I, I was sort of going back and forth on which one might be more interesting to face for the bucks the 76ers of course have a have a huge or high ceiling with a, a lot of talent out there um, but I, I was really afraid of the raptors I, I thought they were really the only team that would that has a system that seems like they're disciplined enough to stick to like even if the bucks have success they would be still still trusting in their system and the Bucs wouldn't be able to break them down in the same way that they were able to break down the Celtics after game one. And, and it really seemed like that, that bore itself out in the end.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you look back on each of the games, barring game two and game four, both of which were respective blowouts for different reasons, all the other, the other four games were all super close. Like there wasn't really much in the way of deviation from one game to the next. It was like, okay, both teams, are going to not struggle offensively, but it's going to be kind of a grind to kind of score. And then, like you said, it was just kind of a matter of execution and also kind of the vagaries of basketball where against the Celtics, you have a couple of different role players like George Hill step up and he has a huge series, or you have a couple of good minutes from Pat Connaughton or, you know, Nikola Mirotic is in a total black hole. Like you have all these guys who provide you enough of a boost that after game one, they kind of adjust and, the bucks return to a baseline and then the role players boost them up a little bit and we saw in the series against the raptors which part of it is credit to the raptors and part of it too is just shots going in versus not going in you see pretty much every single bucks role player you know decimated to one Extent or another, you know, George Hill played okay, um, not nearly to the same extent as in the Celtics, but then you see for the Raptors, it's Fred Van Vliet, he helps out Kawhi Leonard. You have Norman Powell for a couple games, excuse me, um, you have Marcus All for a couple games, um, you know, Pascal Siakam. So it felt like you have this kind of even matchup between Giannis and Kawhi, both teams execute to you know a certain degree again it, it was difficult going for both on the offensive end and the defense. defensive end, kind of get into but then it really kind of came down to who which team had the unnamed guys or like the unheralded guy who stepped up and unfortunately for the bucks it happened to be the raptors infuriatingly because a lot of it was like you know here comes the norman powell game who we're gonna leave them open six times you know in the first half here and he's gonna nail every single three of the same thing for fred van vliet so um, we can kind of get into the fact that the Raptors were super disciplined defensively, but I think a lot of it has to be chalked up to they just did a better job on offense. And when you're going to get games that are like in the high 90s, low 100s, if that, then that's just kind of going to be the differentiating factor.
2: So, so would you peg this more as um, a Bucks, the Bucks, the Bucks loss on uh, lack of offensive execution or defensive execution?
1: Um, I would say it, it's tough because both were obviously in play, but I would say almost probably more the offense because we saw against Boston, game one again, it was, it was horrendous. And then Giannis pretty quickly figured things out. And part of it was Boston, once they kind of went on the back foot, they there was no way they were going to be able to come back. It just didn't seem they had the structure, like you said, the discipline. Whereas time after time, Giannis was either – making the pass, maybe a second too later, whoever was manning him up was able to kind of disturb his dribble and he wasn't able to find the open shooter or whatever it happened to be. And the execution that worked so well against the Celtics, or even if, you know, for whatever reason, they were still crashing and Giannis wasn't getting going. There were other guys who were able to help pick up the load, whereas that just wasn't the case um, frustratingly throughout this series. So I would say it, it was more so the offensive lack of offensive execution than the defense, even though we'll have a lot of images of like Fred Van Fleet being open 30 times a game or whatever it was and, you know, constantly doubling Kawhi and him constantly figuring his way out. I would say it was more so offense than defense in my opinion. Where do you stand on that, Kyle?
0: Yeah, I would definitely say it's offense just because once Toronto limited Milwaukee's transition game, it, the Bucks' half court was putrid to say the least. And part of that is Giannis having a couple turnovers, especially in Game 3 where he had 8 or 9, just couldn't seem to get the read or, like what Riley said, half a second too late. But then you had Chris Middleton who, other than Game 4, didn't find a rhythm. Eric Bledsoe didn't do anything good until the – I think it was Game 5. And he was okay in Game 5. And in Game 6, he was better, minus a couple mind-boggling turnovers. It just seemed like the offense just – came to a halt and I think there was a staff that said they were getting like 0.6 point per possession which is that's just bad it's not even that's not an outlier that's not you know maybe going against I mean Toronto's a good defense but that's just Milwaukee unable to do anything other than hope that a shot wildly goes in and it didn't seem like anyone could step up and you know Malcolm Brogdon was somewhat able to get to the hoop but it wasn't that wasn't well. Giannis would get to the hoop and either he was missing stuff point blank or got called, called for a charge or decided to pass out of it for some odd reason. So I think for me, it was just the offensive execution because if you have these set plays, you should have gotten better looks. And Milwaukee just couldn't seem to find a good look while, yeah, Toronto was able to get open guys for Fred Van Vliet or Norm Pollard or Marcus But I think that was more by design because they didn't want to have shots at the rim. Or have corner threes. But with Milwaukee, they just couldn't create anything at all.
1: Without looking it up, would you guys know whether or not 0. 0.6 points per possession was better than every trip for Giannis at the free throw line? Because <laughs> it felt like it was like a 0. 0.4 points per possession every time a possession ended with Giannis going to the free throw line. We can get into that too. It's so. not even Giannis. Every, like, I think yeah, everybody everyone that.
2: was struggling. It's Yeah, it's slightly better. What did Giannis shoot? Like 58 Point three percent or something from the line something like that. It was yeah, up it was, 60. I know that for sure.
1: Yeah. Some of those Andre Drummond numbers out here. Let's go.
2: <laughs> yeah. Here, if uh per basketball reference. So it was on, um, it was a on hundred, 151 free throw attempts for the Raptors. They shot 80.8% and on 170 for the bucks, they shot 72.4%. Um, that'll Giannis- do it when
1: the difference of margin of victory is like six points routinely.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really small. Funnily enough, that both teams actually had exactly the same amount of field goal attempts as well in the whole series when it came down to it, 526. It's it's always fascinating how these playoff series, all these stats just get so darn close and and line up even with the two blowouts in there.
1: Yeah, I would say it's just kind of, you know, just – piggybacking off of the fact that it was just for me, a lot of offensive execution. I think Marcus Johnson, I don't know if it was going into game five or I think it was going into game five. He, he posted some sort of set where like the bucks had made 34 out of 145 threes, but like some massive percentage of those three point attempts were wide open and they were making like 10 to 15% of them. Like it just stuff like that is exactly what's going to sink your season. And it, it's, we talked about it all year long. It's, it's the issue when you have a system that's so reliant upon shooters, making it And like over the course of an 82 game sample, of course, it's going to kind of work out math wise into your favor. but when you have a seven games and you know how people can kind of get in their own heads or what, you know, whatever kind of mental gymnastics are going on for each of the players on the court, stuff like that. It's just going to make the load that Giannis has to carry that much more difficult to bear the load that Chris has to do besides the defense. And then also help on an offense. Like there's, there's so many different, confluent factors that sunk the bucks and that that's what's most annoying about it is like you have this whole season where everything works together and then seven games or six games where it doesn't and that's just how it goes sometimes
0: yeah and for me i think game five was a perfect summary game five in the second quarter where the first six seven minutes they only scored two points and that seems to happen way too many times in each of those games where they just go through a stretch where they couldn't other than game two they couldn't put together multiple baskets. And I think that was part, like I said, part of that is the offensive execution, but normally like throughout the season, the Bucks would at least have like, their third quarter where everything is on, like, they're going on fire. They score 40 points. Suddenly what was a close game is now a double digit lead. And that never happened in the games that they lost. So that was kind of like what you say with the make or miss league. If you're hitting the shots and things go your way, but I think that's going to be something that really that was really curious to me. It seemed like the second quarter, especially, Milwaukee always struggled
2: offensively. Yeah, and you took you. We were talking obviously about Giannis's struggles at the free throw line. Clearly, that's something he'll want to clean up next year. I'm not. Sure, I'm not sure how much more he can really do. I mean, he shot it fine in the regular season, and maybe he just got in his own head. But it did seem like, especially in that Boston series, you know. Milwaukee had a lot of really promising third quarters and everything, but there are also definitely times where the Bucs weren't scoring all that well. And they just kind of had Giannis barreling his way in and, and getting to the line. It felt like there was a lot of start and stops there where if the Bucks' offense was sputtering, Giannis was able to still get to the free throw line and sort of slow the game down um, to a point where the Bucks' maybe half court offensive execution, even if it was poor, they were still able to at least get some points out of a possession um, and yeah, you guys were talking about the 0. 0.6 points per possession. Yeah, Cleaning the Glass said that at like 84 points per 100 possessions in the half court. Um, for for reference, in the regular season, the New York Knicks scored 88 points per 100 possessions in the half court. So um, basically in the half court, the Bucs were worse than the tanking Knicks this season um, against t- Toronto's fantastic defense.
1: Yeah, so much of it was like, so many times and we'll kind of talk, I think a little bit later about any sort of adjustments that we would have liked to see made or like any sort of changes, but at, at, how much do we need to credit Toronto for like shutting down the Bucks time after time, the in transition opportunities? Like I think game five, they kind of jumped out to an early lead because they were running the Bucks. I should say, because they were running like right from the get go. And they, you know, they put up you know 17 fast break points in the first quarter or whatever it was like, that kind of thing is the exact antidote you need when your half court offense is totally shattered. And like you said, there wasn't any sort of real variation once you got into half court sets for like, OK, if we're going to let Giannis have the ball, then he's just going to kind of barrel in and hopefully kick out or like, you know, try and force his way through three dues. There was never an opportunity where it's like, OK, maybe let's try to post Giannis up or let's get some off ball action going on for, to kind of help. Them out. It was there was a lot of standing around, which worked during the season because you have the whole season and the guys are shooting better. But there was just so many possessions where there wasn't any sort of like urgency, it didn't feel like to try and get an easier shot. Like every single shot was tough shot express. And unless it was Chris taking it, most of the times it didn't go down. Which, uh, you know, if that's going to be the basis of your offense, yeah, you're going to score 84 points per 100 possessions and it's going to be a total rock fight. And you better hope you're able to play that much better on defense to keep it competitive. Otherwise you will lose.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the transition game was effectively the only way that the bucks were going to score in any sort of effective manner in this series. If you look at some of the clean, the glass stats, it's kind of crazy. So the Toronto, like Toronto off live rebounds um, plays that led to a like number of transition plays. Uh, So Toronto did like, 26.4% 26.4% of off-live rebounds, so basically a quarter of the of their live rebounds would lead to a transition play. That was second in the conference finals. 35% of uh, live rebounds the Bucks got would lead right into a transition play. So it was like, essentially, if they would get a rebound at least a third of the time, they're running down the court and trying to get transition. But, uh, I mean, Toronto effectively either making shots or getting to the free throw line at a higher rate um, than they did in the Certainly in the regular season, um, I think that, honestly, for me, yeah, the defensive execution of the Bucs, I think, was was decent. But when you talk about just sort of a level of discipline, um, I mean, the Bucks' free throw rate, so if you're looking at that, it's basically how many free throws did the opponent make per 100 field goal attempts. In the regular season, the Bucks were the best in the league at that, only allowing 16.1, and then in this series, uh, they allowed 23.2. Um, so, I mean, you talk about when you were talking about small margins, Kyle, like this is a case in point right there. That's a, an execution that the Bucks failed to do in this series that they had done all year. Yeah. And we were
0: kind of saying that with Toronto shooting 80 something percent from the line. People want to complain about the refs, which I get because especially in game five, it was very frustrating. But at the same time, Milwaukee was constantly making mistakes that they should not have made. And if you look at Game 3 in the double overtime, that's the prime example where, you know, you have a clutch basket and you try and you need it and Chris Milton turns it over on that backboard violation. Or you look at Game 5 when Malcolm Brogdon has it and troubles it and goes off his leg when they do the thing. And along with the mental errors, it's just the things that Milwaukee had done so well, like rebounding and limiting free throws, they completely fell apart in both those areas and you know free throws you can only be at the mercy of what the other team's doing and the referee's calling it but rebounding really was i think the glaring thing that changed from the regular season to this series that they just fell apart in and you look at games five and six and in game five you have Kawhi taking that shot hits the front rim don't get the re- marcus gets the offensive rebound what could have been a one possession game i think they're down three at that point you then allow that offense rebound foul they go up four that's it or in game six kind of the same thing where Kawhi had multiple offensive rebounds or pascal siakam you just had those moments where everything that you've been doing so well just completely disappeared and i don't know how much that was a mental thing and how much of that was just ter- i don't want to get more but those I, the, that's the margin that i think isn't really getting talked about enough. I know people are talking about Giannis's free throws and the shooting and Eric Bledsoe's poor play and stuff like that, but it's really the things that Milwaukee did well that got him in this point that let him down.
2: Yeah. And and the rebounding numbers weren't crazy different um, from the regular season, but the stuff that just never shows up in there is the stuff that you're talking about Kyle, where it's like when those offensive rebounds seem to come like in the, forget which game it was, but where Serge Ibaka just got like two or three offensive rebounds and was just like fueling a Raptors run and, and the game just got out of hand or obviously case in point that Marc Gasol won. Um, there's that, you know, the Bucks were, had got the game to within seven and I'm just like all these games are blurring together now. And then Norm Powell happens to like hit a big three. Um, so, I, I mean, it all sort of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Riley, is, is, is for Toronto uh, I mean, certainly their role players stepped up and, and hit shots, um, especially, uh, you know, working off of, of passes from Kawhi. Uh, and I think that would be a good jumping off point for this next one, which is sort of Kawhi's Kawhi obviously becoming the offensive hub. But then also these especially these last two games, just like make doing an incredible job as a playmaker, sort of the same sort of playmaker that the Bucks want Giannis to be. And he is for them. But, you know, either players weren't making shots this series or it did feel like at points he was holding onto the ball a beat too long.
1: You mean Giannis was holding onto the ball? Yes, Giannis was, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, um, I think part of the difference is, so one, yes, we need to credit Kawhi a lot for what he did offensively because he was excellent pretty much every single game. I think game five was the only one where he wasn't. and even then they were able to get by, or was it game four that he really struggled? I can't remember. Um, but one of those two, but outside of that, he was great pretty much the entire series. And I think what's difficult is, you know, he he's such a good on ball defender that when he was switched on to Giannis, like Giannis was already struggling to kind of get his offensive game going, but it was made that much more difficult when like he's going, he's driving towards the basket and he pulls up short, like he usually does. And it's not pull up short in one fluid motion and kick the ball out and kind of keep the offense moving. It was like Kawhi is right there, either bodying him up and kind of throwing off his dribble and kind of getting in there, forcing Jans to either like keep dribbling while he's like trying to reset himself or struggling to kind of pin the ball on the ground to actually retain possession or before he actually turns it over. And when you have that kind of impact on both ends, it's so different from the way Giannis can be impactful because we all know Giannis is a great on ball defender, you know, one through five, but his real value is in kind of like the cleanup guy, you know. Like between him and Brook Lopez, the reason the defense works so well is because those two guys together are like not impossible to score over, but they're gonna make your life a lot more difficult. And just the way that Kawhi plays defense is is so different from the kind of dominance that we've seen that it's a little difficult to process and kind of understand, like, oh, this is what's happening here. So I I think, you know, Giannis still had a pretty good series in terms of like the counting numbers. And there there were a lot of moments where he kind of made things happen where when the team was struggling. But um I, I think a lot of it kind of comes down to Kawhi is used to executing in these kinds of situations. And he's had a lot of, you know, practice throughout the season and then in previous years in San Antonio working within a system where he's the dominant guy on both ends. And, you know, Giannis has had that experience, but not at this level where everything's failing so it's going to fall on you and it it kind of showed throughout the series and again need to give a lot of credit to him and the Raptors and you know Nick Nurse and and the whole crew over there because they did a wonderful job making sure that Giannis wasn't going to have a Kawhi series and even when Kawhi struggled they were able to do enough elsewhere to be able to help out yeah and I got some I just pulled up some
2: stats from nba.com I was curious how the role players shot basically off passes from uh from Leonard versus Giannis. So here's a couple of guys for the Raptors. So Siakam off 21 off Leonard passes, 21 three, these are all three point attempts off 20, 21 three point attempts shot 38%. Danny green, who was missing shots all series, still shot 38% on 21 field goal attempts, three point attempts for the Raptors. Marc Gasol, who was off and on, but hit some big shots on 23, three pointers shot 39% off Kawhi Leonard passes. Kyle Lowry on 18 attempts, 38%. Now, let's go to the Bucs. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <No. laughs> to oh, yes. Off Giannis passes. Okay, Pat Connaughton, two for 12 in the series, 16%. Boo. Chris Middleton, on 25 three-point attempts, shot 36%. So Okay, yay. that's fine. <laughs> right? That's not bad. That's not bad. Nikola Mirotic. we Ooh. all know how this is going to end. Uh, 27 three-point attempts, 26%. Um, That's higher than I expected. Not gonna lie. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Eric Bledsoe. Ooh, oh no. Yeah. Twenty-six three-point attempts. Twenty-seven percent. Also That's higher than
1: I, than I thought edit. too. Yeah. Right. Really? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. This this is, is, wow. It's, it's, okay. This is, is this feeling good. Okay. A bit heartbreaking. Yet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Oh, were these for the whole playoffs? Oh yeah. All right, no. well, I screwed all these stats up. So they're still, all still like depressing. They're still depressing, They're still incredibly depressing. I was really wondering
0: once you said Danny Greenshot, I was like, there's no way like, Danny Greenshot that well at all, <laughs> all right. this series, but Being I kind of let it go though, too. Okay.
1: I was thinking the same thing. I was like, I'm just gonna let that one go because I don't have the stats in front
0: I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. Like, that's how the series <laughs> was. Like you could tell me that Toronto didn't like Fred
2: VanVleet and Norm Powell didn't miss a shot. I'd say, Yeah, that made sense. Yeah. All right. Well, all right, so screwed that up for everyone, but <laughs> I think the point remains. It's still crazy that Pat Conten only shot uh, two for twelve in the entire playoffs. Alfio's passes, um, and I, I think the uh, I think the interesting thing now when we think about Giannis Santacunpo, clearly emerging superstar, the whole narrative was sort of flowing his way, likely MVP, all this kind of stuff. I, I mean, uh, the I was I've always been curious about when the narrative for him. It's going to flip when it's going to be like when besides not beyond just the idea of like i mean i don't want to talk about him leaving i never want to talk about that it's just annoying as all get out but like the idea that he can't do it on a big stage like um there's a little bit of disappointment in him and i i know obviously the bucks wouldn't be anywhere near this state without him but I think at this point I, there has to be like a, a genuine sort of real conversation about the idea that like, yeah, he played, I mean, he played really well. He played really well all season, but he also just got markedly outplayed in a playoff series by another superstar. I mean, he shot um, 61% at the rim against Toronto. And obviously they were sending help and everything, but I mean, he shot 73% in the regular season, like him finishing down there is what the Bucks, uh what made the Bucks such a potent team, them, being able to draw defenders and kick out to guys that hit shots. So, uh, I mean, Kyle, how do you, and how do you think, as Bucks fans, we sort of reckon with this idea that, like, Giannis has a lot more pressure on him. How do we sort of balance the idea of, like, yes, we know we wouldn't be here without him, but we also kind of need to place some of the blame for losses at his feet, probably, as the leader of this team? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely look at Game 3, and say
0: Giannis did not play well those are too many turnovers and you have to put some of the blame on him for that you also have to put some of the blame on him for game five when he's missing you know seven eight free throws when you lose by six seven points that's going to be a difference so I think Giannis definitely deserves blame but then again everybody on the team deserves blame because you know Chris Milton only had one good game and a bunch of average to bad games Eric Bledsoe had one average game and a bunch of bad games Malcolm Brogdon had one good game average it's like everyone had average games throughout the whole series and you can even look at Budenholzer and say you know you kind of got out got out coached by Nick Nurse your rotations at times were questionable it's going to be tough and I think the conversation has started to shift because initially let's just say Milwaukee doesn't make it out the first round then that talk would have been on. Okay, Giannis can't get out of the first round. That's going to be an issue. That would have been the talk. Gets out of the first round. Had they lost to Boston, that would have been. Yeah, Giannis can't compete with the better teams. Knocked out Boston pretty convincingly, so we're fine. But now it's Giannis got outplayed by another superstar, and I think that conversation is starting where now you have to win. You know, getting there was fine. Getting through one round is fine. Playing, you know, a historic franchise is fine. But now you have to prove that you can lead a team to the finals. And I think that conversation has started. I don't think it's going to change regardless of that dumb hit piece that was published seconds after the loss. I think Giannis gets a slight pass if they don't. Like kind of is the same thing with Toronto. If Toronto doesn't win, no one's expecting that because Golden State is Golden State. But if Golden State you know, starts showing more signs of weakness or falls apart and the team isn't the same, then you're going to start looking at James Harden. Then you're going to start looking at Giannis and be like, okay, what are you guys going to do? you haven't proven that be that same thing. It's going to be like Chris Paul where there's going to be role players that get compared to making the finals compared to them. Um, So I think Giannis definitely deserves some of the blame, especially being the leader of this team and not playing as well as we have seen from him, but it'd be ridiculous to kind of put the blame on Giannis and not anyone else.
2: Yeah, of course I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but I, I think it is an interesting thing. Um, to ponder. And I just want to say, I just want to quick, I finally got the stats pulled up so I can correct myself for my uh, horrific error earlier. Same sort of idea. Nikola Miritich, 13 oh, three point attempts Yes, yeah, so <laughs> we're going back. I want to say it because I don't want to mislead the loyal, loyal listeners. All right. Miritich, 13 three point attempts off Giannis passes, 23%. Still Era high on so <laughs> 13 three point attempts, 15%. Mark Lopez, 14 three point attempts. 28.6%. So there you have it. They still sucked on shooting <laughs> three-point attempts from Giannis. And then for the Raptors, just really quickly as well, Siakam, 10 three-point attempts off passes from Kawhi, 30%. Norman Powell, okay. 25% on, three, three, on eight three-pointers. So I was surprised by that. I thought that would be better. Um, Gasol, eight three-point attempts, shot 50%. Lowry, six, shot 50%. Fred Van Vliet. No, please don't. Seven three-point attempts, eighty-five point seven percent. He made six yeah. of them. So, yeah. yeah. So, well, it's great to also, make that. with the Toronto shooters, it wasn't necessarily passes off of
0: Kawhi. It was the extra pass that was made yeah. because they were doubling from Kawhi. So, yeah. there's all that to put in.
2: Yeah, still sucks. Um, yeah. So there you go. Now you have uh, now you have correct, um, horrific, terrible stats to it make you even more sad. Uh, but I want to talk. I do want to talk about. Nikola Mirotic. Uh, obviously, we know he didn't even play in Game Six. I think that's a pretty huge development. Probably had to be really hard for Bud to even reach that point. I think that was. Um, I, I think that's got to be incredibly difficult for a guy when you think about bringing in a guy with pedigree, a guy you trade for at the trade deadline, a guy who has definitely been a part of your lead up to that point. Gets tapped to start in the starting lineup. Um, and so I, I think it takes some cojones by Bud to be like, all right, we're putting this guy down. Also a guy who's going into free agency and probably this isn't like a great way for him to want to go out and think about the Bucks organization, you know, who knows? Um, but it, especially Riley in the contrast to Mark Gasol, who was part of that, uh, Eastern conference trade deadline, you know, armoring up. Uh, I mean, he really clearly fit right into what, the Raptors wanted to do. Um, And even if he was, I mean, he hit some timely threes and that was big, but really defensively, he was huge, uh, huge for them, just making the right rotations, giving them a guy who could play big. Um, It wouldn't be a net negative like Jonas Valanciunas was. Um, And Nikola Mirotic was terrible, uh, but sort of the, the, Outlines of what the Bucks expected him to do was basically take their offense and supercharge it to another level. I think the Raptors were thinking Gasol could really help shore up their defense, um, and I, I think it's interesting to think about those sort of different philosophies in terms of why they acquired those players and and really how it played out in this series.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would kind of question whether or not we can really say that Miritich has a pedigree per se. Like, I think he's a thirty six percent career three point shooter. Um, he was like decent in Chicago, but he was also part of some terrible Chicago teams. He was, you know, decent again in new Orleans and he fit well against, or next to Anthony Davis. And then he got traded about the paint. So I think, you know, when, if you're going to compare Nikola Mirotic and Marcus Aller, it's just like, you know, it, Mirtich's value is it it, it everything was predicated on, like I said, him supercharging the offense because, he could be okay defensively, but he was never going to be some sort of stopper or like some sort of critical guy. There was multiple times where, you know, I don't know if he didn't know his personnel or, you know, he gets switched out on, you know, the wrong defender or the wrong offensive player and he gets roasted or whatever it happens to be. And he had a couple of times where he could bail the team out by getting an offensive rebound and put back, but otherwise there's just wasn't much going on. And like, you know, it's difficult because he played pretty well in the regular season, but there was always a chance that when you have a guy whose entire value is predicated upon making these awkward, like quick release threes, if he's going to go cold, then what's the point of playing them? You know, like he's not going to add value elsewhere to justify his minutes. So um, yes, I'm sure it was a tough decision because I'm sure Bud was just like, okay, this next game is when he's going to hit like, Four out of six threes, and re- that's really going to bail the team out, or maybe the game after that. Or, it, you know, it, he waited four games or waited until game five to actually swap him out, which is probably one of my complaints. But, um, I guess I'm disappointed in Nicola, but I don't know if I really expected him to really show out and be like this game changing guy because. You're kind of risking it with a guy who's a decent three-point shooter, but probably not really – I'm not sure if I would label him a quote-unquote marksman per se. When you're dealing with that, that's a lot of vagaries to have to work around. So annoying, but uh, probably should have been more so take him out earlier than wait to see if he gets a spark because you only have six games to work it out. And If you're going to waste four of them by having one dude out there for 30 minutes who can't make a shot, then you're going to make it impossible for yourself.
2: Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think I was probably guilty of that in terms of. Um, I, I, I mean, it felt like, and I hadn't probably you know thought about him. I, I feel like the narrative around him was as as kind of a a, a sharpshooter, like a, a gunner. But it turns out he's just he's a little bit more of a Mirza Toledovich type from deep in terms of his percentage and everything. And I mean, granted, who knows? He did have that broken thumb. It seemed like it had got you know sort of affected. I think on on one contest in the Boston series, so maybe that was affecting his play. Who knows? Uh, but I, I think the more important point you were talking about was was Bud really sort of sticking with Miritich, you know, for quite some time now. And I think that's a good transition into talking a little bit about Bud's coaching in this series. Uh, I guess, Kyle, what were some of did you have any sort of uh, main complaints with Bud? And and um, it feels like he's gotten a lot of uh, feels like he's gotten a good amount of fire for either whether it was not playing Giannis enough in this decisive game um, you know, some of his choices to, to stick with these guys, uh, Miritich case in point all the way to the end. So what were some of your overall impressions of, of some of his coaching decisions?
0: Yeah. First of all, I'll talk about the Marc Gasol-Miritich deadline deals that it kind of showed, you know, what a midseason deal can do for a team. I mean, Gasol was virtually unplayable in the first two games, but then he was able to turn it around while Miritich was virtually unplayable the whole series. And it took until game six to take him out. But it's kind of weird because I look back at that train you know, you still make that trade nine out of 10 times if you have the opportunity to do it. Because would would Don Maker really have been that much better? I don't think so. Maybe defensively he could have been more impactful, especially How you know, dare Toronto. you
1: slander Toronto Thon like that? I was going to say Come Toronto on. Thon, playoff Thon.
0: You know, <laughs> I know that would have made a difference, but I still think, you know, nine out of 10 times I would take Nikola Miritich for this team than Thonmaker in even if Miritich headshot 30%, maybe Milwaukee wins a couple of those games. So it's kind of tough with that aspect. And like I said, with Gasol, he was virtually unplayable the first two games, but turned it around, which credit to him. Um, I remember being asked by Raptors HQ, um, would, should Brogdon be starting? I said, not yet. Things are going well, unless M- Miritich is playing terrible. And, you know, the first couple games he was terrible. It wasn't until, what, game five that Brogdon was in the starting lineup. I don't know if it was game four or game five, but it took – that long just for brogdon to get in the starting lineup and Mir kitcher still getting minutes then game six it was nothing at all so that going into my point with bud he did seemingly go with some of those guys a little bit longer than he should have i think going into game six i said play Giannis, milton and brogdon 40 plus minutes have a seven man rotation with ursan and george hill and just run with that and see what happens and Bud didn't do any of that. I think he played Middleton 39 minutes, Giannis 39 minutes, Brogdon even less, like 32 or 33, which he said that playing Giannis 44 minutes isn't going to help them win, but all the stats show that the Bucs were better with Giannis on the court, so why not try it? You know, you you are in a do-or-die situation. You have to throw everything you can. You play your best players as long as you can. You saw in game three in the double overtime, Toronto had Kawhi and Pascal Siakam out there 50 minutes. And, yeah, that one double that went into the double overtime, but even if it was just four quarters, they were still pushing, you know, 45 minutes. I mean, games one and two, Toronto's still playing those guys 40-something minutes. And I think that's more of my issue was you could have at least tried to play those guys as long as they could. And another issue, kind of like with Miritich, if he's not going to hit shots, kind of the same thing that I said with Pat Content, if he doesn't hit shots, then he can't play. And that was the issue with Miritich. And I know this is going to annoy some people and appease some people, but playing DJ Wilson might've been the better idea. That's not to say DJ Wilson would have been the end all be all solution, but he couldn't have been worse than Nikola Miritich. Or if you wanted someone that could be a shooter, then play Tony Snell who shot what 39, 40% the whole season. Again, wouldn't have been worse than what Mirchich had provided, so I think those are going to be some of my complaints with Boonenholzer. The, the decision not to play Giannis at the beginning of the fourth quarter in Game Six is inexcusable, and I, I'm not going to be on the fire bud like
2: bandwagon bud.
1: bring chasing Kidd back wait, well, who's to to, jason...
2: is someone started the fire bud bandwagon there's that not a fire can, bud bandwagon but there are definitely right people right that were away. saying bud needed
0: to go like there's people <laughs> saying like bud was an awful coach and all this stuff and like he needs to be fired for this performance so, like okay let's just remember we had joe Prunty and jason kid last year and that makes although joe Prunty and jason kid would have played yannis the whole <laughs> all the yes game yes game so the that's post- one year. that's
2: one place where joe Prunty just clearly has the edge over bud is he's willing to push his guys to the limit yeah. Um, I, the, the bud. the this is bud why thing. you stay
0: off Twitter, folks. Stay off yeah. of Twitter. <laughs>
2: um, I I don't know. The bud thing to me is, is so interesting. I think. Uh, I mean, we went in, and I felt like after Game One of of Boston, it was like, oh, all my questions are answered. He he made these um he made these choices to to switch more against Boston. Um, and it feels like that was you know his his inability to make adjustments was certainly the primary bugaboo that was holding you know uh, lingering over him heading into. Um, these playoffs, and um, I, I just have a I have a hard time being like, yes, you should throw the kitchen sink at Game Six. It's an elimination game. I I have a lot more quibbles with the um, maybe not playing Giannis enough than dusting off some of these guys. Um, I I think maybe in retrospect, one of the things that really hurt them was, um, yeah, Pat Conson was great down the stretch and everything, um, you know, and and he was huge for this playoff playoff run and everything. But um, I you know, it, it just seems so hard. Riley, to have to like reintegrate a guy like I, I think DJ Wilson was probably a non-starter. He barely played in the playoffs. I, I Throwing a guy in like that uh, into the deep end seems like a not a good decision to me. Uh, and then Tony Snell, too. I mean, I, I think he just got hurt at really the wrong time. And um, he could have been a guy who maybe with his length and athleticism would have been really good defensively. Um, maybe someone to even spell uh, a Middleton or Brogdon for a small stretch on Leonard. Um, I, I just think it's hard to reintegrate those guys this late in the game.
1: Yeah, no, I would agree completely. Like talking about Prunty, that's like going back to the Boston series. Like, all right, we're just gonna get that Shabazz Muhammad forty-five minute (laughs) game right now, game seven. Um, You know, kind of what what this series and last series and just kind of in general is really driven home for me about Bud is when we hear about he he doesn't make adjustments. What and it could be different for other people, but what that makes me think of is he's afraid to make adjustments. He's he's doesn't have the confidence in his own ability to like make the right choice. Like that's, that's kind of what I feel like when I hear that, whereas what this postseason kind of really drove home for me is not so much that he's afraid to make adjustments, but he has so much self-confidence in the system that he built. And to a certain extent, you can understand where he's coming from for good reason, because this is a 60 win team. They had a historic net rating. They routinely demolished team after team. And even when they first faced adversity in game one against Boston like I said he made a slight tweak but a lot of the same things that they did throughout the season just went right back online no problem at all and you completely wipe the Celtics out in you know the next four games and so when he comes into this Raptors series on top of everything else you get through the first two games with wins and you're like okay this this is working that's you know it, it's not pretty but it's working and then you go down you lose another two games you're like okay, you know, game three, that's just a really ugly game and it didn't go away. You can understand where he's coming from, from there. Game four, that's a blowout, and then things start getting a little iffy, and then you start seeing that just. So there are little things like going to Malcolm that I would have liked to see earlier. I would have liked maybe, you know, we were getting killed on some defensive possessions because just the execution wasn't there. Like, I don't know if it's a discipline or a focus factor. So like if he could have found a way to kind of work that maybe a little bit more. But for me, I don't come out of this upset with him or labeling him like this guy who's just totally rigid but it's probably more so confidence in it if I was in his shoes I would understand where he's coming from it's really annoying you hope that you're able to kind of make changes but like you said um it's difficult in game five game six to make all these wholesale changes to bring dudes off that either haven't played in a while or they weren't even that really big of a part of what you were doing throughout the entire season so I, I get where he's coming from I don't come out of this series feeling like he's been indicted as this guy who you know he can't lead you to the promised land because I don't think that's the case. He de- designed a system that worked excellently, and unfortunately for him and the Bucks, they kind of ran up against a team that had the right personnel, the right star, the right coach to be able to kind of make the small tweaks that threw off the system just enough to win it in you know six games. And we should remind everybody. Yes, they lost in six games, but pretty much every single game besides the two blowouts were really, really close. And, you know, a lot of that comes down to lucky bounces, you know, if somebody makes a couple of free throws here or there. So I think looking back on this series, annoying, but definitely not some sort of Bud can't win because he's shown us all year long and throughout the postseason that he can. It's just, you know, will he have the personnel in the future be able to kind of make it happen again and kind of put Giannis positions to redeem himself for this series and kind of push you even further into the finals per se.
2: Yeah, I certainly hope so. And I think there's obviously there's room to improve. I mean, this is a guy who came in and like when he was hired this for those first two weeks or whatever him and his, I apologize. I don't remember who wrote the story, but like him and all of his coaches, like just went to a cabin and like spent like four days, like mad scientists, like trying to figure out what type of offense and defense to build around Giannis and Uh and, and whatever they pulled out of that worked really, really well. And I think this is uh, in, probably going to be an instructive series for them. And I think, like you said, Riley, I, I for me, it was just more of a matter of the fact, like the Raptors defense is really good. They're incredibly, incredibly disciplined. They're built supremely well to take a guy who can kind of match Giannis off the bounce, send help. And then all of them can recover really well uh, to, to shooters who might be on the outside and then throw Giannis a little bit off of his rhythm, uh, I, I just think they they did an incredible job um, getting the bucks out of what they wanted to do. Uh, and I, I think the, I, I think the, if you guys don't have anything else to say about, but I kind of want to do one last thing about um, Eric Bledsoe, because I think that's probably, that's something we should definitely talk about.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think we can go on to Eric. I think it's uh, the elephant in the room. One of the elephants in the room for sure.
2: Yeah. Uh, we, we certainly kept this towards the end. Uh, obviously I don't think he, he clearly won't be happy with his, his playoff performance this year. Um, Riley, did you say you had sort of his shooting splits
1: up? Uh, Yeah, let me pull him up up again here. So for the season, he shot overall. Let me see here. So he shot 48.4% overall, 32.9 from three. And I believe that was like on five attempts a game. Um, And he shot 75% from the free throw line. Whereas during this series, Unfortunately, it uh, exactly went all the opposite, and it kind of extended from the Boston series as well, but I believe in this series he shot, let me pull it up here, he shot 29.4% overall from the floor on 11.3 field goal attempts, not great. Shot 17.2% from three off of 4.8 three-point attempts, and he shot 76.2% from the free-throw line, so that was a little bit more decent, and then rebounding numbers, 4.3 rebounds and 4.2 assists, so those were decent, didn't really turn over much, but I think we'll kind of get into it, but there was, its just baffling how bad he was offensively. Like even when he tried to do what everybody advises him to do, which is drive towards the pain, he just was not finishing. I would be curious if you have uh, the numbers up for how he did around the rim, but a lot yeah, of the three uh, uh, and a lot of the three point attempts, it, none of them were really like in the flow of the offense, or at least the most egregious misses were like Giannis is standing by himself at the top of the key and, Eric like, dribbles three times to try and break down Fred Van Vliet and then shoots a three. Like It was just weird decisions. He seemed totally out of focus on offense or just he, he for whatever reason, the margins weren't going his way. And I, I wasn't an advocate of like pulling him completely because I still thought it was really important that you have him for you know the finals. You have to keep riding him and hope that he snaps out of it because he was so valuable all season. But suffice it to say, it was what could be called a dreadful series from him.
2: Yeah, just to follow up on that before I kick it over to you, Kyle. So Bledsoe in the regular season, uh, it's five point three field goal attempts in the restricted area, shot sixty eight percent. In this series, on three field goal attempts, uh, he shot thirty eight point nine percent, which is just absolutely dreadful. This is a guy who was essentially finishing at the rim with like the volume and effectiveness of a big man, um, but that's just six foot two. It was a huge part of what of his game all season. You know, he he has. Uh, great discipline in terms of just shooting. He'll either shoot a three, he makes it an okay clip, or else he's getting to the rack and able to finish. Um, and clearly he was doing not executing properly and, and just doing it at a less high frequency. Um, and so I'll just kick it over to you, Kyle, in terms of talking about what uh, what else was was obviously clearly disappointing about his play. I feel like I defended Eric Bledsoe, at least all playoffs. I don't know about the whole season. I think I was a little low
0: on him at the start, but it was just frustrating because I felt like – Each game, yeah, it was a rough game, and he got through Boston. He's going to be fine against Toronto. He's got to be the second-best player for the Bucs against Toronto since Chris Milton was going to be rendered uh, ineffective by Kawhi, both guarding him and being guarded by him, but it was just rough, and you can really tell, even during a Game 2 blowout, he still couldn't find a rhythm, and a lot of that was his his three-point shots. It felt like half of them were wide open that didn't fall, and the other half was kind of like what Riley was saying. He would try and dribble and break down the defense, and it didn't work. And then he would just say, okay, screw it, I'm going to throw it up there. And I feel like defensively, at least, he wasn't as miserable as he was last year against Boston. But offensively, he just couldn't do anything in any way other than game six. And then, you know, you turn around in game six and you try a behind the back move, lose the ball, turnover. The Kawhi dunk happens. Everything goes to. A certain word that I will not say. um It's not so. Goes to
1: heck. Goes yeah. to heck.
0: I was <laughs> going to say crap, but you know, <laughs> it's just I don't know what happened to Bledsoe offensively. So, but my thought process is this: he's already resigned, so we got him for at least four years. He can't be traded until September anyway. Eric Bledsoe last year was bad in the first round against Boston. He was bad in the Easter Conference Finals this year. So. Mm-hmm. In theory, if Eric Bledsoe is going to have another poor postseason performance, it's going to be the NBA Finals next year. It's
1: fine. <laughs> wow. Okay, we're already getting Whoa. the hype train rolling for next season. <laughs> Toss them coal in the furnace, baby. Wow.
2: <laughs> the, I mean, the thing with Bledsoe, we I mean, <laughs> just the, walk I'm, right
1: past that. I'm just like, I, yeah,
2: I don't know. The thing with Bledsoe, I'm, I've been a big proponent of his all year. Um, I think. I mean, this is a guy who he's, he was first team All Defense in the NBA. Like that, that can't be. Over overstated, and I, I think uh, the interesting thing with him is that I, as a point guard, defensively, I think it's tough to have the same sort of level of impact um, as a guy like Kawhi Leonard, obviously, who can who can really lock down a, a wing. You think about um, like Andre Iguodala for the Warriors, right? That's a guy who no one who teams will typically ignore, and, and he'll, sometimes he'll hit down, hit some shots, um, but his all of his effectiveness comes as like him being able to lock down the other team's best player. How often can Bledsoe do that? Uh, I, I think it's a lot tougher as a point guard, especially when you're getting ripped through picks, and, and he does an excellent job of getting through them, doing some of those like blocks from behind, the follow-up from behind, and, and affecting shooters that way if they're funneled into the mid-range. Um, but, I mean, this is a guy who was a key, key cog of the league's best defense, um, found a way to play within himself uh, offensively all season, um, I think he was just, I don't know what happens with him getting in his head. We've had this conversation all postseason, but, um, you know, at least for now, he's probably, he's going to be on the team, um, for the foreseeable future. Uh, and I'll be really interested slash curious to see if any teams, um, Riley decide next year, just in the regular season, you know, it's just a random night, sort of the way that the bucks would go with their crazy scheme against the Rockets. Like if they decide to do what the Raptors didn't be like, all right, we're just going to throw, um, a big guy who can be a help defender on Bledsoe so we can just ignore him completely from beyond the arc. Cause it didn't feel like teams really did that all season.
1: Yeah. It'll be interesting. I think a lot of this discussion around Bledsoe kind of revolves around what you philosophically believe like the most valuable type of player is like there's what, what do they say with Draymond green? It's like 82 game player versus a 16 game player, or mm-hmm. whatever it is like, you know, it seems like at least these last two playoffs that Bledsoe was probably more of an 82 game player and like how much value put on that. Like I'm not sure if we'll see next season, like teams totally ignore him from the outside because during the regular season, he was decent. Like he could make you pay for not closing out on him. Maybe not every single time, but he was good enough to make kind of work. And then for whatever reason, like you said, it's not like he's, broken physically like maybe there was an ailment he was dealing with but we never heard about it and if it's all mental is there a way you can work around that like to me there's still a lot of value in a guy who was an integral part of getting to the best record in the league like if the bucks are going to have a tough time constructing the roster and finding extra pieces you know because of the way the cap works and the way contracts work if you're going to be having guys like chris Middleton kind of aging a little bit You have, you know, you're probably picking up maybe a couple ring chasers here or there, but otherwise the baseline is pretty much right here. You're going to need guys like Eric Bledsoe to maximize how well you do during the regular season to make the path easier in the postseason. So, yes, it's really, really frustrating, and I'm not sure what the solution is in the postseason, if he's going to be completely AWOL or an active detriment, but... I don't go out of this series and say, we need to trade him. Like, you know, if we have him on the team next year, the season might as well be moot because there's no way we're getting past it. Like he was really good all year long. First, you know, like I said, first team defense and he was excellent in offense at times and all these different sorts of things. So I think a lot of what we're talking about today and what kind of be extrapolated is like, it's really frustrating, but you cannot be hot takey about the team. And I'm going to trust John Horst to not be hot takey about the team that's constructed. Um, you know, he showed it all season long. He's able to build around a lot of different constraints, but frustrating from Bledsoe, but he's so valuable the rest of the year that you kind of, you have to roll the dice. And maybe if a deal comes along that you're able to move him and kind of clear some space, you move him. but he works so well with Giannis and he did so well during the regular season. You're going to need that in the future because it's not going to get any easier, you know, from here on out, I would say.
2: Yeah, and do you guys have anything else about the, Kyle, do you have anything else you want to say about the Raptors series? I thought we could do just a a quick look ahead and then um, a look back on on this season that that really was historic and I have a lot of fond memories from.
0: The Raptors played really well. Props Mm -hmm. to them. They were the better team. Um, Yeah, I think that's pretty much, they made the adjustment after game two to put Kawhi on Giannis and Siakam on Bledsoe and it worked wonders for them, along with role players. So, I mean, this isn't one of those where we can sit back and say, yeah, the Bucks." should have won the series. I mean, I think they still should have won the series, but at the same time, Toronto was really good and they earned that series win and a trip to the finals. And it kind of shows that if you have a chance to get a superstar caliber player like Kawhi, if there's someone out there, you have to take the chance no matter what. If Even if it upsets you know, a couple of players or even if it makes your fans upset, you make that trade all the time, 100%.
2: And this Kawhi trade proved it. Yeah, nice validation for them. Uh, I think we can all agree that if any team were going to go to the finals from the east um, out of the top 4 that were contending and it wasn't the Bucs, thank goodness, it's Toronto and not Boston or the 76ers. All oh, right. God. If it was Boston, I would have I I don't think I would have been on the internet. I would have <laughs> gone
0: to an isolated area, just kind of get a cabin, sit there for the whole month of June and if Boston were to win it, I I think I would just retire. <laughs> it would be that bad.
1: I feel like I need to, with the series over now, I need to apologize to Nick Nurse because I called him a dumb person or sorry, sorry. I called him like a dumb person uh, and, and I called him a quote, wannabe life coach. So I apologize, Nick Nurse for calling you those things. Even if you do look like a wannabe life coach, um, you did a really good job and, uh, your glasses are weird. So good luck in the finals. I'm not going to watch a single minute of it. Uh, And like I said, it was really frustrating because it was so close, but um, they were a 58 win team. They have Kawhi Leonard, who is really, really good. And uh, there's no shame in losing to a team like that. in the fashion that they did It's just annoying as all.
2: Yep. Yep. Totally agree on all accounts. So good luck to the uh, Toronto brethren who have, have equally been um, faced with disappointment these last few years. Good, good for them to finally break through. Hopefully, one day we'll get our we'll get our chance as Bucks fans, and we'll be um, hopefully more elated for it um, <laughs> after going through this this little bit of heartbreak and disappointment. Uh, it, so, when talking about the, we're going to talk very briefly about just some early feelings on on next year um, before we talk about our favorite memories from this past season. And obviously, I think it's really hard to have any sort of realistic feeling on what's going to happen next year, just because of this, you know, incredibly fraught off season that's coming up. You know, Brooke Lopez is a free agent, George Hill, likely gone. Nikola Miritich likely gone. The Chris Middleton uh, discussion with free agency, Malcolm Brogdon. Um, we're going to save all that kind of stuff for a later pod, but um, you know, Riley, what's sort of your early impressions and, and feelings about um, this team and, and coming back next year and, uh, potentially their ability to to replicate what they did this year at least with the people that we know um will be on the team next year
1: i feel pretty good about it i think we've reached a point in janice's progression where he's able to get you you know it, it's been discussed like he gets you to a baseline number of wins but i think he's kind of evolved into this not final form but as close as you're going to get reasonably um and I feel like the way that Buzz system works, it gives John Horst a lot of flexibility to kind of find dudes off the scrap heap that sort of might work within it. Like Pat Connaughton, for example, is a prime grade A example of somebody who off the scrap heap works perfectly in the system. So, yes, there's a lot of questions about what part of the core is going to be coming back, but between having Giannis between having a lot of the guys, you know, there's still a number of role players that are under contract for next season that you can either move them or they've already shown that they can play. And then also it it should not be discounted. Yes. The bucks have a fraught off season, but like every other contender has a fraught off season, like the Celtics, who knows what's going to happen with Kyrie and Al Horford, Toronto, maybe Kawhi is going to go to the Clippers or somewhere else. Um, Philadelphia, they might end up paying Jimmy Butler fifty billion dollars a season, which would be the best outcome. But I, I think there's <laughs> and like and you know if if Kawhi and KD or not Kawhi if uh, Kyrie and KD move to New York or they go to the Knicks or whatever happens, there's a lot of you know chaos set to come in the East. But because you have Giannis for next season and you have probably. It's going to be tough, it's going to be expensive, but you have a clear idea of how to bring back a lot of the core if you have interest in it. Um, I I like their odds of probably making another deep playoff run. Um, Maybe not nearly as many wins, but I think they'll be pretty much as good next season as they were this year.
2: Yeah, Kyle, one of the things that I I I, I felt, I mean, I obviously went all in on this season, a lot of us did. Um, basically predicting Bucks to go to the finals, maybe even winning it for some of us um, was one of the reasons I thought that was just, this was just such a unique opportunity this year with all these guys still under minimal contracts and and the depth that they had a guy, you know, the luxury of bringing a guy like George Hill off the bench, the luxury of having, I mean, like Tony Snell is like a 10th guy. If you would really, really need him. Uh, Nikola Mirotic, obviously, you know, he didn't quite work out in these playoffs, but it felt like this was sort of a prime opportunity for them to capitalize on that. Um, Obviously might be a little more difficult next year, but they can certainly have some young guys and other people who should be coming back and I'm sure they'll find some other uh, nice maybe potential free agent pickups. Um, so what's what's what are your sort of early thoughts and impressions for going into next year? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. They're gonna sign and train Middleton
0: for, uh, not Kawhi, for Anthony Davis. And it's all oh. great, they're gonna get Bradley deal <laughs> Like, no, they're gonna sign Kemba Walker. I don't know what you're no, talking yeah. about. <laughs> um, but no, in all seriousness, I think, It really depends on what the rest of these Eastern Conference teams do. I think right now, if unless Kawhi comes back to Toronto, I don't I still don't think there's a team that I would confidently say is better than the Bucks. If Kawhi comes back to Toronto, then that's the only team. So that's kind of that's kind of what the good thing about Milwaukee's situation is. I think they bring back, you know, Middleton and Brogdon and I think they find a way to get Lopez back. Um yeah, it is kind of tough because you don't, you won't have as much cap flexibility. You won't have as much roster construction. You won't, The flexibility goes away after this year. But at the same time, we know that with this core group of guys, you can make the NBA Finals. Now, if you can win a championship, that's going to be a question that I don't know if we're going to be able to answer. But we know you can at least make the Finals with this team. So I expect John Horace to you know, sign a couple guys this offseason, maybe a few of them will be those ring chasers, kinda of like what David West was. And maybe you convince Brook Lopez to sign a deal at a smaller rate. Um or the nice thing with Malcolm Brogdon is you have the kind of have the upper hand with him being a restricted free agent. You can ex- offer him the qualifying offer and you can see what the market is out there for him. I think that I know last time they, with Tony they kind of just gave him an offer, but I think I'd, I'd re, be really curious just to wait for what a team is going to offer Bronco. Because someone offers him, you know, 18 million per year, do you want to match that? And that's kind of the tough question because if you match that, okay, what are you going to do about Chris Middleton? And then what are you doing about Lopez? And it kind of creates that uncertainty. If they're willing to go into the tax and okay, whatever, just do whatever it takes to bring them all back. But if you're still trying to have some flexibility i don't know it's going to be interesting i think i still think they bring the band back together just because we saw that the team is capable of making the finals and i think they are still the best team in the eastern conference unless Kawhi comes back and yeah they might they're still going to try and get that home court advantage but i think they're going to you know maybe do a little bit more resting or kind of throwing that atlanta hawks lineup where you're just throwing a bunch of guys that are on the bench in G league against, you know, tankers. So that's going to be my outlook on what's going to happen in a short, brief stint, but still, it's still trade for Anthony Davis. No, I'm kidding.
1: I'm kidding. (laughs) Mike, my question is going into next season. Kawhi Leonard and you Dante DiVincenzo.
2: Hey, wait, can you, can you wait, sorry. You cut out and I heard uh, all I heard was DiVincenzo okay, all right. and I need to hear it. Yes, I need to
1: hear what you're about to say. It's an important thought. So I'm asking what's the difference in terms of on-court value between Kawhi Leonard right now and year two, Dante DiVincenzo. I think that's a question nobody's asking and we really need to think about this off season.
2: <laughs> I cannot wait to have uh, Dante's Inferno return. Hopefully... For summer league, if we get him doing some absolutely insane stuff, we can finally see the uh the red haired Ragu back out there playing <laughs> incredibly, <laughs> incredibly well. Um, I, I do think it's such a fascinating idea though. And you know, I know the Bucks are will start to spur up. You know, we finally gotta get into draft draft coverage now that the, the Bucks are out of it. Uh, and yeah, just draft some dude at thirty, who cares? We can on. just we <laughs> can just draft some dude at thirty and we can say move on. But I think it's, like, really important to actually consider the fact that the Bucks are like, have, this is one, um, they're only going to have two first-round picks the next four years. They just traded away. They don't have that many second-round picks, and they've really used that um, to get some really decent contributors the last few years. Who knows whether those guys will be good enough to contribute in the playoffs. Um, we obviously saw Sterling Brown get marginalized um and maybe we could buy a second round pick but i mean look at a guy like uh, kevon looney for the warriors right this is a guy who was picked i think 30th or something seemed like a throwaway but like now he was like absolutely integral to them uh turning into what they are now right down the as uh, as they have basically no cap flexibility and not much room at all so i actually think this this pick is, is more important than we're probably going to give it credit for i think it's important to get a some guy who even if you can have to groom him for a little while can contribute down the road. And I I think it's just as important to um, point out the fact that like we saw DJ Wilson turn into a really reputable NBA player under Bud. So, I mean, even a guy who looks uh, left for dead uh, after one season could potentially have uh, a bounce back year. So I I think we still have to trust in Bud's development. uh, And hopefully in, in that regard, we'll see improvement from Dante DiVincenzo next year. Uh, we'll see even more improvement from DJ Wilson. Um, even if the 30th pick doesn't play or whatever, maybe he'll be a guy who can give him spot minutes off the bench. Uh, but especially for DiVincenzo, I, I think him, he needs to be able to make shots if he's going to be worthwhile anything in 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 the postseason. But I, I think internal improvement from some of the younger guys um, is, is something that I, I'm really keying in on for, for next year, especially if we lose some of this veteran depth we had. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, all right, well, the, the last thing I think we should do here is just, it, just look back on on any really fond memories, favorite stuff we might have from this season. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have stuff off the top of your head that you can think of. I, I certainly have, have at least one or two, but um, if you're ready, Riley, do you have any like sort of favorite fond memories you want to remember from this year?
1: Um, I, I think, you know, it's kind of not cliche, but it's a little lame that I only get to see the team usually once a year when they come up to play in Minneapolis. Um, and this was real early in the season and we were just kind of getting the outlines of what this team was going to be. Um, and it was just a lot of fun to see them because, you know, in years past when they come to Minnesota, it would just be sloppy. Like it would would not exactly be the most entertaining basketball you could imagine. Um, and I, I think it was just so clear right from the get go, like even four or five games into the season, the potential that this team had and to see it all kind of come together in this way that even the most optimistic among us, Kyle, I'm not sure if, you know, getting to that high level, getting to 60 wins was anywhere near like within the realm of possibility, at least in my mind. So, um, just that early on. And then I'm not sure if I have any other like games that really stand out off the top of my head. I think it was just an enjoyable year, uh, because when was the last time the Bucks had this much success? Who knows? And I think part of the beauty, like we are just saying is it, it's not a one-off, like there's, there's the foundation in place to kind of have similar seasons going forward. So I would say it was just a, a joy to watch from right from the start of the year, uh, all the way through the end. And I'm looking forward to next season as well.
2: You know, I'll, I'll kick mine off before I send it over to Kyle. Um, so he can, he can ruminate. I have, uh, I think mine, I mean, mine's kind of cliche too. I don't get to see the Bucks much living out in Philly. Uh, But the one game I did get to see was absolutely incredible with Eric Bledsoe getting injected early. Um, Giannis, like blocking Embiid in an absolutely crazy manner, uh, shouting at all the loud Sixers fans around me as I turned into a terrible, terrible fan. Uh, (laughs) Telling them all their players suck and um, making fun of Zaire Smith. But then a. to see this team like come back uh, down the stretch in that game, I just felt like th- that was like felt like the culmination of all of my belief in this team coming to fruition finally. And it was that was just an incredible, incredible game to see live in that respect. Um, and, and there were plenty of other great memories throughout the year, but that's the one that sticks out in my mind. I got another. Few- yeah, go ahead, Kyle. I was going to say, I yeah, the, the Minnesota game that was
0: pretty cool.
1: Um, oh, yeah, Kyle was there. I <laughs> forgot about that. We, yeah, uh, saw Kyle there too. That's why that was my favorite game of the season because I saw yeah, Kyle that, there.
0: But yeah, kind of like with what Riley said, like going up there was pretty fun and just seeing how many Bucks fans were in that arena. You know, a couple of years ago, there wouldn't have been any fans at all, but just, just see how many fans were in that arena. I think that was like encompassing for the whole season is just seeing. More people wearing Bucks gear. More people talk about the Bucks, and more people caring about the Bucks. I and mean, you get those screenshots of the Deers are strict and how packed it was. You know, I look at the Wisconsin State Journal, and the Bucks are normally right up on the the kind of the top part for sports. You know, unless it was a Badger football game or a basketball game, or you know, the Monday after pack game, it was always the Bucks, which that was a really cool thing to see. So the Minnesota game, I think, kind of showed like how much this team has grown in popularity. Um, I think the All Star game. For me, it was kind of fun, even though I didn't watch any of it, just seeing the highlights and seeing people geek out over Giannis's dunk and Chris Middleton catching fire and just the fact that Milwaukee had two all stars and the coach. That was a really cool thing to see. It just seemed like, especially with Chris Middleton, all the work that he's put in throughout his career, that was, you know, I think that was great. And then for me, Milwaukee beating Boston in a playoff series, it felt like payback from last year. It sent them to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think that was. Other than after game two of Toronto, that was when the fan base was all in a collective good mood. You know, there wasn't any infighting. There wasn't any doubts about the team. Everyone was just high on the team. Everyone was happy. So those are three memorable things that I saw. And oh, yeah,
2: when Giannis dunked on Kostas Kufas in Sacramento, I saw that in person. That was awesome. Oh, goodness. Um, The Giannis dunks just never end. They're always spectacular. And I feel blessed to be able to watch him. It was, uh, yeah, you you wrote about this eloquently, Kyle, on brewhoop.com. Definitely go there to read that. Mitchell Maurer, of course, had a great um, sort of season reflection piece as well. Uh, just talking about the uh, proliferation of Bucks fandom throughout the, uh, the state. I know growing up for me outside of Madison, they always were fourth f- fiddle. I mean, they like barely ever would make the state journal. Uh, if they were, they were just always never, almost never on the front page. Uh, the to see the all the Deers District stuff it, that was live, see it packed, and really see a, a nice place for Bucks fans to congregate because they, they just really didn't have that before. It felt like to me, especially when I was in Milwaukee, if I was able to, ever able to get over there to see a game. So it, it's just been really cool to see this franchise and this team grow from where it was just a few years ago to to its popularity now. So kudos to this team, kudos to Bud and Giannis and and the whole squad and the owners, obviously trying to push uh, push this team out to the entire state. So it, it's really been cool to see them in their inaugural year in the Pfizer forum. And before we sign off, I'm just going to let you guys, cause I don't want to speak for both of you. Uh, just say, if you want to want to say anything to to the listeners for our first season together, I know it was a lot of fun for me, uh, but Riley, was there anything you want to say for people who have been uh, long time listeners to this point?
1: Uh, I apologize. Since I'm apologizing for a lot of things, I apologize. <laughs> what did I say? I think it was our very first podcast. Uh, I, I was talking about people either lamenting Jabari or something oh, along yeah. those lines. I think I called them simpletons. So I want to apologize to anybody <laughs> who I called simpletons before the year. And I hope I haven't done anything like that since. And uh, we really appreciate, you know, obviously you guys listening. It's uh, kind of, we're working it off the ground. We're working through a lot of stuff as we go along. So we appreciate the patience and we hope, you know, after this season and kind of going to next, we're able to keep on providing better and better products. And we appreciate all the, uh, all the time you've given us.
2: Yeah. You could Kyle as well, obviously. Yeah. I, I guess should
0: apologize to Canada for calling them Canadian peasants. Uh, Probably uh, get that thrown out there. Uh, Otherwise, no, kind of echoing what Riley said, just appreciate um, having everyone listen, sharing it, talking about it. Every single one of you is great. I know I mentioned it in that same piece, just how everyone that has read something that group has done, that has shared something, that has followed us on Twitter, that has watched my Periscopes, anything that you've done to contribute to the site in a positive manner, I guess in even a negative way. I really do appreciate it. Um, like I said, I, when the season started, I had gotten laid off from my job, so I was not in a great spot, but having the bucks there was like a nice outlet and escape for me. And this was my first year running the social media and it definitely came with some um, highs and lows, some (laughs) dumb mistakes that I've done, but, at the same time it was fun doing it and yeah I just appreciate everyone that has listened to this podcast somehow letting me on this podcast (laughs) and going on for what we have what third this could be episode 31 so I was on it for about 25 26 of them so I've enjoyed it it's probably been one of my favorite things to do and one of my favorite seasons
2: yeah uh, th- obviously thank you to all of the Brew hoop listeners and Brew hoop readers. Uh, it's always a huge treat for me. I guess in terms of apologies, if we're all apologizing, um, I'll say probably I'll probably apologize for some of the audio issues occasionally. I think we've found that the, I am uh, the root of them and uh, every time we have them, I uh, curse myself out um, for whatever happened and I shake my fist at the sky. Uh, so thank <laughs> you for working working through all this with us. Uh, it's been it's been been really instructive for me to go back and listen and see all of your feedback uh, trust me when i say we, we talk about the show a lot i think we have some ideas maybe we want to try and institute for next season uh, of course you can look forward to dante's inferno finally returning uh, if you're a fan of that if you don't there's always the skip ahead 30 seconds uh, <laughs> and uh you know it's just been a really rewarding experience i can never say enough for all the people who contribute to brew hoop uh kyle riley Andrew, Andrew, Sylvan, Mitchell, uh, Gabe, Dakota, am I missing anyone? Uh, I hope not. If I did, i'm I'm sorry. But yeah, you guys are an awesome crew. and and everyone who listens to this podcast have been uh, really understanding and forthcoming with their their opinions on it. And I hope it can I wish there was a better way for it to sort of spark conversation on the site, But hopefully it's enjoyable for you on your ride. Um, and going into the off season, just as a heads up, we're not going to be weekly anymore. We'll sort of just record. Probably ad hoc, maybe what we were doing sort of at the start, every two to three weeks. Look forward to a pod somewhere around the draft. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get that out. But in the meantime, of course, go to brewhoop.com for all of the um, Bucks reflections you might need uh, for draft coverage that's going to be coming up here. We'll do our annual, uh, I think it was season in review, or yeah, we'll do our annual season review, look back on some of the players and how they did this season. Uh, and, uh, of course our off season coverage, stay tuned. We'll be back for, for draft stuff for free agency. It's a huge free agency for the bucks for summer league. And, uh, we'll have, we'll have pods to go along with them. So thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you again sometime soon.
1: On the streets of
2: old Milwaukee was a young boy walking.